Welcome to Raising Equity. You might have heard that we're doing a series called Podcasting Amidst the Pandemic. I want to use this channel to highlight some of the stories of the pandemic. And so I have a colleague that I met a couple years ago at a conference, and I heard that she had become sick and had had gotten the virus. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I really want to reach out to her and connect with her. And then I heard her entire family her entire family was affected by COVID. And it was a moment where I thought, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't bother her. And then yet I thought, you know what? It's really, it's worth asking if she's willing to share her experience. Because if anyone is one to shed light on not only the struggles, but also the lessons of this virus and the pandemic, it's Lindsay Para. And so she's here with us today, gracious enough to share her experience and the experience of her family about navigating. COVID and navigating the pandemic. And I just want to share my appreciation that she's willing to open herself up. So welcome to Raising Equity, Lindsay. Thank you so much for the lovely introduction. Thank you for the invitation. And um, thank you for giving platform to this conversation. We're all walking in the not knowing together. And I think the more we can link arms and share information, the more informed and less scary it will be for all of us. Yeah. And I, I want to just be honest that I was nervous about asking you because I felt like, oh, that sounds so intrusive and self-serving to say, will you be on my podcast? But then I feel similarly, like if people are willing to share their experiences, there's so much we don't know. There's so yeah. much we don't know. So yeah. thank you. I, sincerely, thank you. No, it's my pleasure. And thank you. I think... Um, I think I've become accustomed to sharing the uncomfortable where a family who has walked with chronic illness for uh, over a decade and we had been uh, on a long journey getting diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease initially and similar actually to what we're experiencing with COVID-19. There are a lot of similar barriers to understanding what you're facing, to getting good information about symptoms, to being able to test, to identifying good uh, treatment or home treatment. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm accustomed to to not only looking for opportunities to share the experiences and share the messages, but truly grateful for those of you who are willing to use your platform and your influence for good. So thank you. Yeah, I, when I was reading a little bit about your story, I saw that, that your family has navigated Lyme disease and yeah. then people not wanting to be willing to test or not believing even if the tests, right? Like this there are some similarities that I didn't realize between the two. And it makes there me are. think about just like the whole area of like disability justice and, and Absolutely. people having to like advocate for themselves and say, no, I'm, I'm really feeling this. I'm experiencing this, even if the, the medical community doesn't believe it or doesn't have a way to categorize it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do to actually listen to the experiences of people in this country who are living day to day in a state of unwellness or disease. We founded a, a company to share information about chronic illness. Um, it would have been seven years ago now called um, Chronic Wellness Tools. That's morphed into full circle wellness tools. But far too many of us are settling for a constant state of disease. And I think this pandemic is illuminating where our fabric as a society has been so very strained. And we're uh, we're going to be faced with an opportunity ultimately to begin to remedy that situation because it never has it been more clear that our health is all connected 
connected and that we are only as well as a society as our weakest link or our least well, well member. And so we absolutely need to begin to address the inequity in how we provide care, provide testing, create access to testing. And even beyond that, um, the the basics that keep us well, like access to fresh air and fresh water and good food and um, and not working 27 million hours a week for not enough pay. All of these things contribute to a collective dis-ease that then shows itself when we have actual disease in the field. Absolutely. So yeah. how did how did your family come to have COVID? Like, how did it yeah. happen for you all? Can you tell me a bit of the story? Absolutely. And it's it's just as surreal for me, I think, as for others in that, like many, we were kind of watching it from afar. Um, I think perhaps more than most, we had an eye on what was going on overseas. The chronic wellness community is international. Um, viruses and bacteria don't care about boundaries and politics. And so you do learn early on when you have become kind of a chronic wellness warrior to pay attention to what's going on outside your own backyard. And so we had been monitoring what was going on in China and then certainly in Italy very closely. And so there was that feeling of why is it that nobody's really paying attention and we're not seeing a response that felt commensurate with the potential threat that we were facing. Um, but I was like everyone else just kind of trying to mitigate the, the risks and be aware but not really expecting it to land on my doorstep. Um, I am in a small rural town halfway between San Francisco and LA so we're not in a big metropolitan hot spot, hadn't been traveling internationally. I actually had been hearing a lot of intuitive guidance in um, 2019 to simplify and simplify. I actually said the words to my husband in early December, like, you know, gratitude girl's been doing her thing for 10 years. Maybe I'll do a year where I don't even leave Hawk's Perch. And he was looking back at me a week ago going, yeah, your little, your little vision is coming true. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was really just a general sense of preparation like the rest of the collective when my son's college sent everybody home from school. My son is a, a college athlete. He plays baseball. And so the baseball team was held over during their spring break to continue to play. And so he had been on campus with um, that group of people, but they had just begun to receive people back from spring break when their school closed. So they weren't as proactive as some of the big universities that we're seeing that were really, where there are universities with big science departments, we saw really proactive behavior earlier and we saw, um, we saw alternative of testing crop up earlier. Um, but in his case, he was sent back kind of at the tail end of that wave. And um, within four days of returning home, he kind of came into my bedroom one morning, flopped on the bed, wasn't seeming like himself. I should have known in that moment, but by noon he fell asleep on the couch and he woke up several hours later with a fever and that's how it began for us. Um, we checked in with his girlfriend he had been with um, earlier that morning. He had taken her to work. Sure enough, she had started to have a headache and a fever. She left work early. We gave them the option to quarantine together through the duration. This is long before the um, shelter at home orders had come in or at least a week before. Um, and they chose to quarantined together. So we had an extra teenager in the midst of our house. 
And we were prepared from a place of we had anticipated a potential need as a family with underlying conditions. We had um, developed a protocol and talked with our practitioners about what that protocol looked like. We had it um, here in the house. So we were prepared, but like everyone, prepared for an unknown, not expecting it to walk in our door um, right at the beginning or the front end of this. Um, Within 24 hours, I started to show symptoms as well. Um, My husband is a a firefighter and a paramedic. He's also a holistic health practitioner. And so he was continuing to leave the house and go up to the Bay Area, which was one of the hotspots in California initially. Um, And so we navigated it for the first few days without him home, kind of giving him a remote um, glimpse into what was going on. We started like many um, that you'll read about if you Google or if you're following in the news or NPR or BBC. um, It was a common combination of fever and very severe headache Mm. and then the cough and the waste in the lungs began. Um, We, by all accounts, have had a very mild experience with it Um, and by that I mean we have never had difficulty breathing other than the kind of standard difficulty you have with a cough or with congestion in your chest, but we have not had that low oxygenation or that need to monitor oxygenation from that place. Um, But when I say mild, I'll say that if if you're used to a flu kind of hitting you like a ton of bricks, but then you really start to feel shift in about 24 or 48 hours, but then you're just kind of tired for a long time. That's kind of the traditional arc of a flu. This one is really interesting. It's very surreal. It kind of ramps up and then it levels off for a long time. And that process is much longer than you're used to. There's a fatigue and a weariness that comes in with managing a fever that goes up and down when you get to day seven, to day 10, to day 12. Um, In most people's case, and it was consistent for us, the fever that goes along with COVID-19 is not a super high fever. Um, We're used to very high fevers in this house. We do trust the body's ability to raise fever to combat bacteria and virus. So We tend to not be a family that suppresses fever unless it gets really, really high. But in this case, the fever was between 99 and 102 at the highest, more consistently right around 100. The interesting thing is it brought with it big swings and chills and sweats. It almost has like a night sweat element to it. A lot like if anyone out there has had malaria or anything like that, where you have these really intense sweats and chills, it feels very similar to that. Um, One of our experiences having had Lyme disease is Lyme disease travels with different co-infections, one of which is a um, blood-borne co-infection called Babesia, which you do treat with anti-malarial drugs. So I think we also had a bit of a body knowledge of different types of exposures to bacteria and viruses that gave us a different vocabulary around how to describe COVID-19. But um, having been a family where, you know, four of us were diagnosed with Lyme and now you know, five of us, because we're four plus one with my um, son's girlfriend, having these symptoms, we're recognizing kind of the overlaps. Um, But ultimately, we stayed in contact with our doctors. We fell into the same trap that so many are falling into in that we were turned away for testing on multiple occasions. My husband, even as a first responder, was turned away for testing. An independent lab in the Bay Area um, is now providing tests outside of the CDC requirements. And there was a bit of an unspoken in the 
um, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but a bit of an unspoken in his profession too, that they would prefer people not get tested because I think there's an awareness that there are so many asymptomatic people out there that they would lose too many frontline first responders. So he felt very much caught in a catch-22 between ensuring that he wasn't um, exposing his crew or us unnecessarily to additional viral load, but also not potentially becoming a spreader if he was in fact asymptomatic. So yeah, we've been on quite a journey here. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah to manage. And to, I think about as a as a parent, one of the things I worry about is myself getting sick. And like, so then will I be able to care for others in the house? And so how I'm has so that glad. been for you? <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because I think it was like two days ago when I started to really turn the corner. Friday and Saturday were my roughest days, but as Sunday dawned, I was really feeling like I was turning the corner and I had this realization, oh, right, we're not like we're not having the same experience everybody else out there is having for most who are sheltered in place right now they're well and they're just kind of in anticipation of this unknown we're actually in it and i thought everyone out there who's like saying i'm not sure what to do with my kids and this is a confined space i'm like just wait until someone in the house is sick um it has been really overwhelming from that standpoint uh, i was describing it to a colleague of mine as it's a little like having a flu with lice at the same time if any household out there listening has ever had lice in the house it's totally different than anything else because all of a sudden you're hyper vigilant and hyper aware of anything anybody touches or sits on or the couch and you're washing loads and loads of laundry a million times a day like this thing has you in that same hypervigilance because you're really your goal is to keep your viral load down. One of the studies um, postmortem that I saw coming out of the early communities hit by this said that in um, autopsies of those who had died from COVID-19, the viral load was 80 times higher than even those who had been intubated. And once you're intubated, you're very progressed in this. Um, so it's just, and also as part of, I believe, why we're seeing so many doctors um, at such a high morbidity from COVID-19 is because they're accumulating this very high viral load. So your job as the average person, um, because 85% of people who get this, it's going to be a relatively mild experience. Um, there will be some who are asymptomatic. For most, it will be like similar to my family, kind of like a strange, mild, but long flu. But your job as someone who is keeping people well in your household or trying to prevent cross exposure is to keep that viral load as low as possible. So that means things like wiping down matters, even after people get sick, caring about, um, you know, uh, increasing exposure. If you know you have one family member who's coming down, it's still worthwhile to have them in one room or to choose one section of the couch for them. Anything you can do to minimize the exposure is important. Um, using natural and antivirals like olive leaf or like oregano oil or my family uses lysine quite a bit that helps su support the body in keeping that viral load down so that your natural immunity has enough time to deal with it. That's essentially, we're talking on a, as a collective about flattening that curve to try to buy our healthcare providers more time. You can think about flattening the curve in your own body. If the peak of this thing is really high, then we see these high viral loads, but try to keep that down and let it extend so that your own immunity and detox pathways can keep up with it and you can get through it in a good way without overwhelming your lungs, your kidneys, your heart, the way that we're seeing. 
And so when you talk about figuring out if one person is sick, you know, putting them to one place, like, did you do that? Did you put your son and his girlfriend in a certain room? Did they, you know, did you, so you tried to keep other people from getting sick? We did. We absolutely did. We, um, we had 24 hours where we thought they were the only two. So we isolated them completely. Um, the only thing I was doing was bringing food over and they're old enough. They're 19. And so I, I equipped them with their own thermometer. We were communicating by text. I was really just checking in on them. When I got sick the next day, that kind of disrupted the entire pattern because now we knew it, you know, my two girls, uh, ages 14 and 10 had also been exposed. As I said, my husband was actually at the firehouse when this first uh, started in our household. Um, and so once I had it, I, uh, I started to act as though my girls were going to get it. And so I moved them up from kind of a standard immune support into a preventative protocol. Um, and then we just kind of took a wait and see with them. But I continued to, you know, not be face to face or not share their pillow or like just a little bit more distancing and really still keeping up on everybody, um, washing hands. Uh, there's, you know, obviously been this huge run on wipes and antibacterials. And um, I think those things are really important, especially if you're trying to interact with the outside world. But when you're in your own home, soap and water goes a really long way. So just continuing to have a good hand washing station. We're a big family for charts and for spreadsheets. And so helping each person be empowered to track themselves. Have they washed their hands this hour? Have they had a glass of water? They're also showing that hydration is really important. And so we are trying tracking things like, are they drinking? Are they getting their electrolytes? Are they getting, um, I really like people to have fresh citrus along with vitamin C. And so, you know, are they squeezing a lemon in? Um, I do think that having a tracking sheet or even getting out a poster board or a whiteboard, if you have an office in your home, or just even using the backs of, um, grocery bags can be opened up and be great wallboard paper for kids. Um, but just make them a little chart and help empower them as well. One of the scariest things for kids in situations like this, whether it's chronic illness or whether it's an acute, I mean, this is the first pandemic in most of our lives, but, um, it's a sense of disempowerment and fear. And so any way that you can give power back to your children and to yourself, the more confident you'll feel in your ability to navigate the unknown, but also literally the lower the stress levels will be. So if their jobs are to wash their hands and to squeeze some lemon in their water and your job was to just cut it in the morning, you're empowering them to care for their own health and well-being in a way that will serve them not only through this crisis, but through their entire lives. That is a really great idea. I hadn't even thought about that because I have one of my children, when he gets sick, it's freak out mode, like itchy yeah, throat. Yeah. He freaks out. Yeah. And I'm like, sweetheart, yeah. you just have an itchy throat. Like we, we'll get through this, yeah. right? But yeah. that sort of self-soothing that I could help him do in terms of charting, I never yeah. thought about that. And I yeah. really appreciate you sharing that because, yeah, even when it's just a common cold, he, totally. he and there was this last time he didn't even want to drink stuff because his throat was itchy. I was like, babe, but no, this, no, this is counterintuitive. We've got to get you fluids. You've got to have fluids to be able to fight this. So I know your throat is uncomfortable, but right. And so maybe if we made it like a, like you said, for this hour, did you drink something and it, it might help make it more manageable rather than have this be this like adversarial, like I need to take care of you. I don't want to be taken care of. I don't feel well. And then it's like not caring. It's uh, nagging and 
and contentious. And that's no fun as a caregiver. That's the last thing you want. And I'm hard on them too. Yeah, we, um, you know, having had little ones who had Lyme disease, we we did develop a toolbox in the family that I think can serve other families in this time. You know, things like, like so in that example with your son, getting out a, a note card and letting them, either you helping them or them writing, you know, scratchy throat. And then three things they do when they get a scratchy throat. And then put that in a little recipe box or in a folder so that the next time they're not feeling, you could say, well, let's go see what helped you last time. And they see a little card in their own handwriting. Oh, right. These were the three things I did. And then you can get that process in motion. And then there are times, of course, where you as the adult are going to come in and say, I've added this card because there's this thing that people are getting sick with. There's this thing called COVID-19. Here's some of the things we're going to do. We're going to get sunshine. We're going to laugh each day. We're going to have some extra water. And then you can add the second card to someone actually gets sick with it. Okay, here are the things now that we're feeling so. We're going to take these things. We're going to rest more. We're going to. And so it just builds a family unity around navigating health challenges in a good way. And it does take some of the pressure off you. If everybody knows that they have a turn during the day to take a a disinfectant washcloth and go around and wipe down uh, door handles, then it's not all on you as a provider. And that's really important if you do get sick. That's really helpful. Really helpful because I know some of my anxiety has been taking care of everyone else because we have three people of three out of four who have underlying respiratory issues and I do not. And so my thought has been, you know, how do I care for them and make sure everything's in place for them? And then I had the moment actually when I was reading your stories of being like, but what if I'm the one that's sick? Then what? And so sharing with my partner and my husband, like, here, I'm saying this out loud, like this is the, mm-hmm. this is how many of this, you know, supplement vitamin you should take. And, and now that you're saying it, I should write it down. I, I should it's just... no different than a teacher's plan You're for right. having a substitute come in. It's no different than having a process document in business. I mean, what allows you to delegate effectively is to track your own thinking, to document it, and to have something you can hand off. And so if you're using even just a, a simple tracking sheet for yourself, should you be impacted, you know that you can pass that on to your helper or your partner. There are many out there who are going to be navigating this alone, though. And so I really want to encourage people to consider virtual pods, to consider ways in which you can get support from afar. Um, Somebody checking in on people, things with respiratory distress can go very quickly and very unexpected. And I don't want to hype fear right now, but I also want to be really honest about um, this isn't one to mess around with or minimize. So if you are doing this alone, or if you are a sole um, caretaker for your children, get somebody's eyes on you twice a day, even if it's by FaceTime. You know, tell a girlfriend, FaceTime me at 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Just put your eyes on me. And you do the same for someone else out there. Just oh, just ensure that we have our eyes on each other and are helping each other, even as we need to use protective measures to be apart. Yeah. The mutual aid networks that have developed have been really beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. So much resiliency cropping up. It's truly, truly beautiful. It is. Something I wanted to circle back to that you referred to, I've been thinking about how uh, this pandemic has shown a light on the inequities that have always been there. Um, yeah. But you you talked about your um, son and his girlfriend, right? Like, so the, yeah. the, the privilege and the beauty that you were yeah. able to take her in, that you had space yeah. to take her in, yeah. that you had space to have them be in a different area. 
right? Like I think Uh, about the privilege that we have of having a home that has enough square footage where people can be in their own areas where we're not on top of each other. And so that just thinking about um, for you, have you, what are those moments where you've like thought, oh my gosh, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to go through this in this way that I have access to, whether it's square footage or fresh fruit. I don't, I'm assuming you're in California, you might have access to fresh food, right? Like what are some of those ways that it's like helped you be grateful? Cause I know you have this amazing gratitude practice for what you have in the midst of the illness. Yeah. That's a really beautiful and profound and deep and probably emotional question for me, um, because it's something I'm really acutely aware of. And um, and it's one of the things that keeps me up at night that we don't all as a human people have access to the same resources um, that we aren't that we aren't taking care of each other and that there is so much inequity in access to everything that you describe, but then also to treatment, to respirators, to tests. And never has it been more evident as we've seen the first few weeks of this unfold in the United States when we're seeing politicians and celebrities and athletes getting tested, but your neighbor can't or your firefighter or the doctor who's treating you can't. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. Um, for myself, I, I think I'm I'm literally carrying a, a type of privileged guilt right now that we should probably all be carrying in some way. We moved out of higher density living in the San Francisco Bay Area to move down to 40 acres in the central coast of California, an agrarian community, agriculture. Our food comes from down the street at a small farm that is not likely to be impacted by supply chain. I can get local meat, local dairy. It is a community that has been, you know, not only had long roots in agriculture, but it also has been at the forefront of the slow food movement. So it's, it's, it, it has cared about these things and had conversations. We've been doing tool sharing for a long time. We have neighborhood pods. So there is an insane amount of privilege and it didn't come from a place of end of days or prepping. It came from a place of human resiliency and wanting there to be equity and access. You know, not every you know, house on the block needs to buy a tractor if one on the block does and we all share, you know, that's, it's a return to a set of shared common values. Um, but I feel it acutely. I, I know in myself that what is the places we're going to see the greatest harm is where we have the least access to the most important things like fresh air to breathe, space to move, access to healing, access to, to, um, cleansers and cleaning products and sanitization, access to good food. Um, Just this morning, I read a really beautifully written and important article talking about how SNAP benefits come through on certain days of the month and how important it is that if you don't have to shop on those days, don't go to the store on those days. That families are waiting for those benefits to come through to restock and the privilege you have of having a neighbor go out at any time or just handing a credit card over or calling for Instacart is not one that we share as a broader collective. So we don't know what we don't know. And so the time is now, and I truly believe that the majority of humans want to do the right thing if they know what the right thing is. Far too many of us have been operating from a place of the lie of the nuclear family or the lie of the individual resiliency. We are interconnected. We need each other. We thrive when we are better connected. And so it is a time to learn what you don't know. It's a time for podcasts like yours to share information and insights so we can compare notes across the 
while and we can be stronger and more resilient together. So this is the time where if you have access to extra, use it for good and pay it forward. If you aren't being impacted financially, how can you continue to pay the people that would support you? We, we're on a 40 acre homestead and we have people who help us on this homestead. We have people who help us in our home. Those people cannot come to work now. I'm not personally financially impacted yet by this. So am I going to stop paying people because they're not coming? We kind of No, they're going to get their paycheck by PayPal or Venmo or who knows what. And should we become to be impacted financially, then we will share the burden of that. You know, we will continue to work together as a team. And so I really encourage people, you know, I've heard people saying, you know, $1,200 from the federal government, that's that's nothing. That's not going to impact me. And I'm like, well, if, it's, if that amount of money doesn't impact you, then hand it over to someone where it will make a difference for a week or a month or however much. We have got to start moving resources into the hands of those who need it most right here, right now. And there isn't time to wait with this particular bug. It can be, I think one of the things I really want to say about privilege too is it's a privilege to be monitored and we're realizing that more than ever. So again, if you don't have someone in the house monitoring you, bringing you a cool washcloth, find the ways that you can get the support that you can. Love that inner child up, even if it's you doing it, but also look at the ways where you can help others get that from the outside. Um, We really need to ensure that people can get testing, that people can get seen, that the people who need the medical support can have it. So, um, So I just, I really want to encourage people to to not only you know follow you in this conversation of you know resiliency during this pandemic, but continue to pull the veil back on the things you didn't know and find ways to be of service, find ways to share your privilege. If you've got two of something, share one. That's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking about, I've been asking myself and other people, like, what are you learning and what do you want to remember in this time? And uh, I, I think some of the push of like trying to get back to business as usual is this realization that people are learning and realizing, like you said, the veil has been lifted. They're realizing a lot of things that totally. you know, we say that this person is a non-essential or is an essential worker, yet they're not right. getting paid a living wage. Or, right. you know, we see teachers literally having to shift their whole lives to virtual to serve our children. And we know they don't get paid enough and what they're worth. And just like the yeah. way things are, are really skewed. Um, yeah. And so I know as like we as adults, we see these things or notice these things. Have you, how have your kids managed coming through this? Like, have they had any revelations or reflections or are they just like, I'm sick. This is miserable. Glad it's over. Oh, gosh, they're I think the young ones across the board these days are so wise. I truly believe our young ones are wisdom keepers. I think they get it. Um, I'm amazed at their resiliency. I've been, you know, even while being sick, I've been trying to show up in my community and support my work is to support largely women, but entrepreneurs, creatives, business owners in growing their businesses or moving businesses online, creating more resilient income. Um, and so I felt 
it was really important, even sick, to show up and say, you guys, you know, you cannot ride this extinction curve all the way down. We absolutely have to create resilient pathways to getting on the upswing. And I think that same model applies to our children. And they're actually very quick to adapt when you allow them. So the ability to move online to a Zoom class, to um, to be creative, to get back in the kitchen and cook, to begin to see, oh, yeah, science exists not just in a lab, in a classroom, at, at school, but can exist right, you know, at your kitchen sink or at the stove or in the bathtub. Like the, the kids are the kids are doing well from that place of resiliency, but they are also the little canaries in the coal mine. They pick up on the collective fear. They pick up on collective anxiety. So this isn't the time to to pull back on the extra love, the extra cuddles, the little bit longer time at bedtime, giving them open-ended space to talk about what's up for them and hearing the the concerns or worries that might be coming up for them is really important. Kids' psyches pick up on a single piece, but not always the big picture. And so it's always really important to help surface um, the little seeds of fear that they might be holding and support them as well. And how did you manage that? Because I know I have two um, kids that are 13 and 10. And Mm -hmm. they both in different ways have expressed Uh being scared about getting Uh sick. Mm -hmm. And the 13 year old, anytime, like, well, if we go out to the grocery store or we were trying to go out to get um, some cleaning supplies and trying to catch the store right when it was restocked. So, you know, we could grab it and uh, had made friends with some of the people in the store. Like, when is the truck coming? When do things get stocked? Anyway, my oldest was really concerned he was because they haven't left the house so he was just feeling like well if it happens it's going to be because you all went out and brought it in and just like all of this fear and so um trying to we've tried to just frame it as you know we're doing what we can to minimize our trips out and we're also doing what we can to support our immune systems and our bodies so that if we do get it because it's a high likelihood we might that we're ready to navigate it but how did you manage that with your children like you I, it's not hypothetical it's happening to them totally i know that's there's so many different ways to go in answering that question because you're at the crux of the entire thing. There is no minimizing this. This is a once in a lifetime, we hope, pandemic that most of our children will experience and most of us are experiencing. Um, they so I think there's there's a few different things I want to say about this. One is about the type of fear that they're experiencing of getting it. The other is how do you respond and talk to your children? And then the third is kind of how do you navigate that as a family unit? So on the getting it side of things, what we well, I should lay a blanket over all three of those first and say, we tend to be a family that's very transparent. I tend to be a family who wants to answer questions that um, are in an age appropriate way, but also that honor science and that honor, um, you know, the fact that there's a, a creative mystical side of every child, but there's also a, a really keen awareness to when kids know when they're being lied to. <laughs> and so I always, like all parents, seek to find that balance. And so on this issue of us getting it, we we actually have always had a mindset in this family of there's, you almost always have to act as if you will, and then trust that you have the resiliency and the strength to face what you will come up against. And so in the case of COVID-19, what we said to the children, which is proving to be true, thank goodness, is there's a high likelihood you'll get it, but also the high likelihood 
likelihood that you will have a very mild experience with it. The people that we're concerned about are the people who aren't going to have a mild experience of it. And so our job is to heal ourselves at home, to get strong at home, to not have to call upon the hospital or call upon the doctor so they can stay focused on the people who really need it. So I think in doing so, what they realize is they don't have to be afraid for their own health and well-being in the same way, and they can protect others. Now, your kids, like my kids, have underlying conditions, and so they know that they're potentially more at risk. And so then we do this thing in our household, which is, well, what are three things we can do? We know there's a lot of things that are outside of our control. We can't make our neighbors play along by the rules, maybe. We can't tell our federal government how to react. But what are three things that we can do? And so we try to keep it simple, age-appropriate, three things that we can do we can wash our hands we can stay inside and we can you know follow our checklist and so again getting back to that empowerment side of things while reassuring them they don't have to worry about the the worst case scenario until they face it let's focus on the 85 percent, which is you're likely to get through it without complication um i this the second piece is kind of like why to be honest or why now should be a time to be more honest than maybe you ever had as a as a parent is because the kids do pick up on it this isn't the time to bs anybody or minimize or normalize any of this. This is a radical experience for all of us, but also in the United States, it's a radical failure of leadership. And it's important to be able to speak that truth in a way that works for you and your family values and your family dynamics without falling into the game of blame, but falling into, you know, a risk assessment. Like what would we do if you were facing a crisis? How do you show up? Do you, do you listen to experts? How do you integrate faith and science? You know, these are important conversations to have as a family unit in alignment with whatever each family's values are. In business, I teach to a framework or a model that is called the resonance model. It's an acronym, ACAR, A-C-A-R. And it essentially speaks to the resonance of what you're putting out matching what's coming back. And so when someone lies to you, especially a leader, and you know it's a mistruth, it compromises trust. It compromises your ability to believe them in a real crisis or a real emergency or whatever that might be. But resonance is something that doesn't come through our intellect. It actually is a sensory experience. Something resonates with you or it doesn't. You can feel when you walk in a room, oh, this is my scene, not my scene, or that's my story that's not mine so even when you said like Lindsay I like how you know you've got this gratitude thing and everything is looked at through this lens that's there's a resonance that happened for you around gratitude well the ACAR model kind of deconstructs what resonance is and it's an acronym that stands for authenticity that's the first A C which is congruence A which is an alignment and then that produces your resonance so if you can Look at that acronym from a place, not of business, but in this case of your family. Be your authentic self. If you want to cry, this is actually a time when it's really okay to cry in front of your kids. It's not the time to go hide in the bedroom. Now, if you're if you're needing the huge purge and you're afraid it's going to terrify your children, of course, do what you need to do. But grieving is really normal right now. It's totally normal right now. It's so normal. Fear is normal. Anger is normal. Trauma is the reality of the water that we're swimming in. And so if you're going to hide your tears, you're actually creating a, 
a lack of resonance. Wait, wait. So, so you're telling often, me I shouldn't have cried in the shower? I should have just cried <laughs> in the living room? <laughs> it's a yes and. Cry in the shower, but don't hide your tears okay, in okay. front of your kids. Yeah. So your authentic self is about checking in with yourself each day and saying, how am I going to walk this authentically? It's okay to say, yes, I was sad yesterday. Today I have anger coming up. Today I want to say, how come I wasn't protected? How come my neighbors don't have the resources they need? How come we're seeing these communities that are at higher risk because no fault of their own, but fault of, you know, X, Y, Z. It's okay to really be your authentic self. Find that authentic self first, because the next step is that C in the ACAR model, which is congruence. That is allowing yourself to show up in the world the way you're feeling internally. So that is the not hiding your tears. The congruence is I can be authentically in my fear and I can show up congruently in a place that I'm upright minded with that fear. If I'm doing that, I tend to get kind of toxic overflow of those those emotions, too. If you're off gassing your anger, it doesn't tend to build up and then get sent in the wrong direction. So that congruence is the ability to show up in alignment with your authentic self. The second A in the ACAR model is alignment. And this is the one where if I'm teaching it to business owners or to or to academics, it's like know your audience, right? If you're teaching about, you know, um, World War II to an a auditorium of Stanford students, you're probably teaching it differently than if you're talking to your five-year-old. That's your innate ability to understand alignment and knowing your audience. And so in the ACAR model, it doesn't mean you just, you know, suck all the air out of the room and say, I'm angry now and this is what I believe and this is what everyone needs to know about. It still means adapt your message appropriately. If you're talking to your kiddos, then yes, there is a way to be authentic and congruent and aligned when talking to your children that does not impact your resonance. And yes, it might be a different conversation. I think one of the things that's really getting illuminated for those in my community who use the ACAR model is being in a confined space together means how do you protect from unaligned messages? A conversation conversation you might be having for work or an interview might be different than the way you might have framed it. And so this is a time to create more space, not less for those dinner table conversations to answer questions like anything come up for you today? Do you have any questions? We got to hear daddy on a meeting with, you know, the the, um, public health officers earlier. And then you heard me on an interview and like, is there any anything you want to talk about? Um, and, And giving everybody a chance to really share and speak their their truth. Um, I'll share one other little tool that we use in our family um, to kind of speak to that collective or more metaphysical angle of what we're going through spiritually together. There's there's a Hawaiian spiritual practice. Many will may, may be familiar with Ho'oponopono, which is kind of this idea of, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It's a really beautiful practice. But there's a lesser known one called the Mi'ikala. And the Mi'ikala essentially gives you the opportunity to extend a blanket of gratitude, but also um, a sincere apology for any harm you might have done in your not knowing. And I think that's one of the things that this pandemic is illuminating is how much we didn't really know or we didn't really let ourselves see we knew intellectually that everybody having health coverage mattered, but we didn't fight for it the way we could have. We knew intellectually that wage inequality had gotten so dramatically out of hand, but we're still kind of taking a wait and see. Maybe it'll figure figure itself out with the next election. You know, like we're still holding back a little. There's there's no time for that anymore. And so we, in our not knowing and our non-pursuit of equity, have done harm inadvertently. And 
So the meet ecala to me addresses that whether you're looking at a broad scale c- collective or whether you're looking in your own family unit. And the meet ecala goes like this: you'd simply say, if there is anything that I have done or said that has caused you harm in any way, I'm sorry. That was not my intention. Please forgive me. And you can use that in your family to build a core routine of preventative peacemaking that you don't actually have to wait for the egregious fault or the fight to be able to say, there may have been something I said on an interview call or a podcast or in a meeting with public health that impacted you in a way that I didn't intend it to. And so please accept my apology. And what I love about that is it, it really strengthens the fabric of communication and trust in the family. And it's one that you can use right along with a prayer or a gratitude when you're lighting your candle at the dinner table or when you're sitting side by side or shoulder to shoulder saying um, good night or reading your bedtime story. It's just a beautiful, loving way to demonstrate that you're open to learning, you're open to healing, that you're able to say you're sorry for the things that you may have done that you could improve upon and that you have a commitment to doing better from that place. That's a beautiful practice. And you've made me reflect on something that I hadn't, just all the extra information that my kids have access to now about my husband and I's lives, right? Like, so I usually teach from my bedroom because that's Mm -hmm, where I can mm -hmm. be and I won't be Mm -hmm. interrupted. So supervision Mm -hmm. for clinical work, teaching, they don't necessarily hear that. But like the interviews Mm -hmm. that I do for the podcast, other phone calls, yeah, they're around and they're listening. Um, yeah. My husband is a public defender, and so he's been on calls with judges and prosecutors to try to argue for people to be, you know, out of jail and not in confined spaces. Yes, please. So that they have the yeah. agency uh, yeah. that they deserve at this time, especially if they're in jail predominantly because they're poor and can't pay Yep. to get out. Yep. Right. And so it made me think, have we talked to the boys about that? Like, I don't know yeah. that we've talked to them about that and yeah. asked if they have questions or thoughts or like, what do they think about people being incarcerated at this time? And, and it's, it does kind of uh, up the ante in terms of what they have access to uh, because we're all under one roof. Yeah, Yeah, we're growing up real quick here all together and our kids are too. But I honestly think we can minimize the shock or internalized trauma or fear or harm even by being willing to talk about it and look at it together. Um, Kids are so resilient and they're so strong and they're ultimately, I believe, going to lead the way to what good healing and growth comes out of this. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this is an opportunity. We're all getting PhDs in life in so many ways that we didn't know we were right now. So many ways, so many ways. Well, I appreciate you being so honest and sharing with us because like I said, when I thought about this, um, I think I thought, Ooh, it would be amazing to talk to someone who's experiencing COVID-19, but I knew, I knew that you would have more to offer than just the experience of an illness. And so I just, I I appreciate it. Is there anything else that you'd want to share with folks specifically about COVID-19, whether it's, you know, your experience or the experience of someone in the household or like you all have been through what many of us, like you said, will likely go through. Anything else you want to share about about that illness? I think I just want to address any fear people might have about navigating it. One of the other really sad things about our times is we are disconnected from our innate body healing wisdom. We're disconnected from our grandmas who knew 
what foods worked in our cellular matrices for healing or disconnected from the landscape. We don't have our kitchen gardens and our herb gardens and our medicinals in the way we did. And so many will feel like, especially if they do get sick, that they're told to self-treat at home with zero resources. And, um, and so I think that one of the things I want to remind people is that your body has a healing wisdom, that you can trust your intuition, that you can do the things that you know bring comfort to you, whether that's making your grandmother's soup or whether that's making tea. Um, if you have the ability to get some supplements and some supplement protocols on board, uh, I really would love to encourage people that two that are proving to have a huge impact, especially those who are self-treating, um, are vitamin C and lysine. And those two don't tend to be very expensive. So if you have the ability to prioritize some resources in that direction. I think it's a great way to go. Um, we're now seeing that they're using high, high dose vitamin C with great effect in ICUs, um, vitamin C IVs. And so you can get high dose vitamin C, both lysine and vitamin C um, get excreted by the body. Uh, lysine is an amino acid and vitamin C, you know, it will cause bowel intolerance, which is not comfortable, but actually helps you shed the virus quicker. And so um, those are two things that you can do. My husband, Casey, and I created, uh, I think it's up to six or seven page long Google document to provide some protocols you could follow if you feel called. Um, there are supplements that you can get there, most of which you can find in a pharmacy or drugstore. You can find online to be delivered, um, but also you can replicate through food-based medicine if you feel called. You can, you can, you know, you can look at more garlic or more ginger in your diet. You can um, bring in those seasonal fresh fruits if you have access to lemons or oranges for vitamin C. So I just wanted to encourage people to remember that although we are going to see a lot of really intense cases in the media that are accurate and true, and I'm not asking people to avert their eyes. I think we should all bear witness. For most, that will not be the case. So please don't let fear run the show. Um, even within our family, let's say that we're six because we had this plus one bonus kiddo with us, but within our family, Two are fully recovered after I think they're on their 14th day now and feeling really well. One was either asymptomatic or never got it. We don't know. I am in recovery mode now. I'm still having fevers that ramp up later in the day, but I'm feeling like I turned the corner. And then my two youngest had truly mild experiences. One is still navigating a fever, but that's pretty much been her only symptom. The other one, it did go straight to her lungs, but with the treatment protocols, it started to move pretty quickly. She's on day four and it's already clearing. And so just want to say there are, I actually believe, especially with this, that there's far more community spread than we knew about earlier than we knew about. I really question some of the flus and pneumonias we saw in um, late February. And so I just want to encourage people to trust that for the most part, I, I think that um, you're well equipped to navigate this in a good way. And if you can be prepared, then you've covered your bases and then help those who can't and don't have the privilege that you have. Thank you so much. And I assume yeah, you. you kept up your gratitude practice through this all. Absolutely. My gratitude practice, I'm coming up on my 
10th year anniversary this August, and it really grew out of a moment like this, but not on a pandemic um, global level. But in my own family, we were at the depths of our own crisis after my youngest was born. Um, she, you know, had undiagnosed neurological issues. This was before our Lyme diagnosis and before um, anyone could really figure out what was going on. And uh, we were driving up to Stanford Pediatrics one day and, the, and a whole car of us, and we were all so sick. And I had just one of these mama moments where I was like, like, this could be the end of it. Like, we don't know what's going on. We're really sick. Nothing is making it better. This first, you know, the most recent littlest, um, they're saying might not make it. And, you know, the sun was setting over the Santa Cruz Hills off on the left. We were driving up 101 and it was just this beautiful sunset. And I remember thinking in that moment, well, there's that, you know, everything else in the whole world could be falling apart. We could be letting go of it all today, tomorrow, in a week, in a month. We don't know. But in this moment, there's this beauty and there's this beautiful thing happening, this event that I'm bearing witness to, this sunset. And that was when I first pulled out my old little flip phone and I said, 30, 365 days of gratitude, day one. And I had no idea what that would be, but it meant for me capturing a moment in a day where regardless of everything else going on in your life, you could actually be feeling cellularly gratitude in your body, whether that's for, you know, holding a hot mug of something in your hands or just witnessing a sunset or hearing your child soft breathing at night. Like there's something where you can actually feel gratitude in your body and that creates a resonance. And if you can capture that moment, that can sustain you until the next time you feel that. And if you can seek that one day at a time, you can get through almost anything. And so I had no idea at that time that that would end up being us pulling out of that darkest period in our family that um, it was just a few days after that that we finally got an infectious disease panel that started to tell us what was going on. My daughter did pull through. If you talk to her OT now, she'd say she would never have known that she was as impacted as she was in that first year of life. Um, but now, yeah, that one day after the next has turned into 365 days of gratitude year 10. And uh, there are so many people who have spun out their own gratitude practices from it. Books have been written, inspired by it in reviews, courses. Um, and I really see my job with that work to, to just um, be authentic and to do the work you know, I'm melancholic by nature. I'm actually not a gratitude by nature. So for me, the 365 days of gratitude has literally been a gesture to that practice. So I know if I can do it, anybody can do it. And uh, yeah, if you keep gratitude by your side, um, beautiful miracles get unlocked. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to follow you and learn more about uh, you and your work and the resources you mentioned, how can they do that? Absolutely. Well, I will give you the link to the Google Doc. It's it's open. It's free. Use it as you will. Make a copy of it. Make it your own. It also has a link in it to a tracking document. Um, and so I'll make sure that you have that. Um, I also have an app in the App Store called Shift Wheel, which is a, a life wheel for tracking yourself. So if it's something you want to do on your phone, you can do that. Um, and I'll get you that link as well. You can follow me on Instagram or Facebook if you're interested in seeing the, the bizarre musings of old gratitude girl. And my business work is under um, the Modern Mystics Institute. I'm the founder of the Mystic Society, which is a new paradigm community for entrepreneurs and healers and creatives, authors, teachers, all those who are looking at new paradigm ways of doing the work that they do in the world. And so that's kind of a safe haven in these unique times. So you can also find that at mysticsociety.com. Wonderful. 
Well, thanks so much for joining us. I, I sincerely appreciate it, Lindsay. Oh, it's such an honor. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. I'm so grateful to be in connection with you. Wonderful. And thank you all for joining us on Raising Equity. I trust that you've learned not only about COVID-19 and how one family navigated the illness, but also about the opportunities that it has for us, things that we can learn about ourselves, our family, our community, and our world. I really do hope that you check out some of the resources that Lindsay mentioned, and I thank you for joining us on Raising Equity.